As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Total Soccer Show as we plough through our latest batch of listener questions. On today's show, we're asking about World Cup squad sizes. We're checking in with the USWNT. We're asking about the best country songs for the World Cup. And we're putting on our best Seinfeld impressions to ask, what's the deal with MLS, Apple TV and their deal? (laughs) Goodness me, I'm not good at that. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me, a man who might be... Better a Seinfeld impression and might not understand the cultural reference. Joe Lowry, hello. Oh, I understand the cultural reference, although it's fair of you to ask if I do or not, given how much I don't understand. I am certain I can't do a better impression than that, Ryan. It wasn't like, it wasn't great, but it was it was pretty good. It was passable, right? It was passable. Okay, that's fairly strong criticism. Now, now I've got to hear your impression. <laughs> What's the deal? No, it's not. There you go. It's really not. Yours is better than mine. That's why I couldn't throw too many rocks at it. Indeed. Uh, Joe, I hope you're doing very well. You've had a lovely uh, vacation break, as I have myself. Yeah. Uh, my question for you is concerning, as we record, the forthcoming weekend. Uh, as as your plans dictate, are you going to California uh, to see MLS Cup? And are you going to try and park anywhere near the stadium? I am hoping to go to California to cover MLS Cup. Still waiting to hear back on, on the final details about my credential being approved. But uh, if I'm going, Ryan, no one's parking in and around LAFC's Bank of California Stadium, which... Ryan, you've been there. I've never been to the stadium, and mm. I, I'm hopeful to go this weekend. I've never been. You have. Your parking experience was dreadful. Would it have been better for them just to say, yeah, you, you can't park here? Or are you still happy that you were at least able to park somewhere? Uh, so, yeah, I tried. we tried first to park on some side streets, and some of them looked a little sketchy. Uh, and my friend liked his car, so we didn't want to do that. So we went into like a deck right next to the stadium, which, as I've mentioned many times, was 50 bucks, And we have seen it cost 100 bucks uh, for recent playoff uh, games. And uh, on the site there, Joe, it's literally right next door to the Coliseum, which has got a a, yep. um, a college game on at the same time. And my last trip there was in March, and I did the marathon there, which started at Dodger Stadium, which is, I think, geographically like four miles from Bank of California Stadium. But in, Cal- in like LA terms, I think it could take <laughs> days to get from there. So, and that's where they're shuttling fans in from, apparently, from Dodger Stadium, which is up on a hill. Um, 
nowhere near the stadium. So I'm a little concerned about that. Yeah, it's it's going to be dicey for a lot of folks who are going. I am genuinely excited about the matchup, though. LAFC and Philly is a really good game. It's the first time, I believe, in 19 years that it's been a best-against-best best matchup mm. in the MLS Cup playoffs. And, of, of course, now MLS is talking about changing the playoffs. And, and maybe we'll hit on that a little bit later when we talk about Apple. But it's going yeah. to be a really good game. I hope people can actually get to the game to watch the game. I hope so, too. Should be one for the ages. And I'll be watching it on a couch, which will involve no um, coaches or com- commuting of any kind. So I'm very Smart. happy about that. Smart. Um, Joe, one other very important event I'd like to mention TSS is doing a live show. I'm not sure we've mentioned it before, but we're going to be in Brooklyn on November 20th, the evening before the USMNT's first World Cup game in eight years. You're going to be very excited, aren't you, Joe? I am so excited, both for the live show and for that game against Wales. We're going to have plenty of coverage here in the TSS feed of that game and of the World Cup in general leading up to those games. But man, we're excited to actually get in front of some people and really talk and remember that it's not just you and me and Taylor and Graham talking, Ryan, to each other. There are folks out there, and we're excited to to come and hang out with all of you to do this show on November 20th in Brooklyn. Come get tickets. The link will be in the description. We are super pumped. Yeah, it will be a lot of fun meeting you guys who want to come to the show. We'll have a soda pop with you at the bar or refreshment of some some kind uh, as well. Yes, should be very fun indeed. But for now, Joseph, shall we get to the listener questions? I vote Mm. yes. Okay. Sophie Koss has got in touch, Joe. said, if you could swap the USMNT with any team in another World Cup group, which team would it be and why? Now, I assume, Joe, Sophie's question here is to benefit USMNT rather than reshape Group B and make it better or worse in the USMNT's absence. I would assume so, but Ryan, that is a fun little twist to put on this question. <laughs> if you could, from an England perspective, swap it out, I'm guessing you would have a different answer than than I will from a U.S. men's national team perspective. So I have two options here that I, I think mm-hmm. are both really good, actually. So my first pick is Argentina. So I want to swap the U.S. and Argentina, not something that England England would like for a yeah. whole host of reasons, but, but really the foremost is that Argentina's really good right now and all World Cup favorites. So I want to take them out, Argentina, out of their group. And in their place, I want to put the U.S. men's national team. Now this then makes Group C the U.S., Saudi Arabia, Mexico, and Poland. So that's Group C, the U.S., Saudi Arabia, Mexico, and Poland. Yeah, Ryan, those are all winnable games. I'm not saying the U.S. would win all of those games, but we've seen them draw Saudi Arabia in a really poor performance. If the U.S. is any more on than that, they have plenty of quality to beat Saudi Arabia. They've beaten Mexico multiple times under Greg Berhalter, sometimes in convincing fashion. They've also been beaten in convincing fashion. But the U.S. has had the better of that rivalry recently, and Poland just doesn't scare me. Now, Robert Lewandowski scares me, but Poland as a unit doesn't really scare me. I think they were pretty underwhelming at the Euros, and I think they are relatively one-dimensional in that way. So three very winnable games. My other option here, Ryan, is to swap the U.S. into Group A. And I think this is kind of the obvious choice. I'm not convinced this is going to be as easy as maybe some folks would think it is. Group A in general with Qatar, Ecuador, Senegal, and the Netherlands. I want to swap the U.S. for the Netherlands. So the Netherlands Mm. are heading to Group B with England, Iran, and Wales. And Group A is now Qatar, who is the weakest pot one team in the tournament, very clearly, but still capable, but but weaker. Ecuador, Senegal, and the U.S. Now, those are also all, in my view, winnable games. I think they're harder games, a lot of them, than, than you would have in Group C if you swap the U.S. with Argentina. But like I said, Qatar is the weakest pot one team, so you have an, a, sort of an advantage there. And so you get the Netherlands out of the picture. I think that's a decent group for the U.S. as well, Ryan. I like that one. I think I might like Group A more than your initial suggestion there, uh, uh, Joe. But Qatar being the hosts, they'll get a little boost. Do you, you not feel threatened by them? I mean, 
not not in the same way that I feel threatened by in England or by, you know, really any of the other pot one teams in this mm-hmm. competition. I will say, though, and, and I've been trying to beat this drum. Obviously, there is a lot of nuance with this World Cup, right? And we've talked about this on the T- on TSS before. It's It's difficult to separate Qatar and the actions and atrocities that have been committed there with the sporting side. But if we're going to do it and just look at Qatar like a team, like the other 31 teams in this competition, in some ways they're not. They're they're decent. They're not going to be just this pushover that doesn't have any sporting history. We talked about this recently on, on I believe, 101 as well. They have improved greatly in the last you know decade or so. And this team, they were in the Gold Cup in, in the summer of 2021, and the U.S. beat them in that tournament. But they struggled a little bit. Qatar had a chance to go up in that game. They had a chance to, to really cause the U.S. some problems. And they did kind of cause the U.S. some problems. So between that quality they have, very well drilled under Felix Sanchez in, in their 3-5-2 shape, they have some some genuine talents that if they weren't Qatar, would probably be playing in leagues like the Premier League and we would know a lot more about them than we do. Yeah. This team can cause problems. I still think the U.S. would take them as their pot one team in a heartbeat, though. Fair enough, fair enough, Joe. I'm going to propose one other group to you and see what you think of it. I would propose to swap the USMNT into Group D. Yeah, I uh, thought about which it. Which is... France, Australia, Denmark, and Tunisia with uh, obviously swapping France out for the USMNT. So they would join Australia, Denmark, and Tunisia. We've got an Australia side who struggled to get to this tournament. Um, Tunisia, who I think have only qualified once for the World Cup previously. I don't think they went super deep in the Africa Cup of Nations either. Denmark could be an interesting one, but that feels like uh, an eminently qualifiable group, Joe. It does. The reason why I avoided that group, Ryan, and I'm curious to hear your perspective here, is is simply because of Denmark. I would have swapped the U.S. out with France, but I am I'm scared of Denmark, and I think everybody should be scared of Denmark. They have been brilliant leading up to the Euros that we covered here, and really since then they were one of the first teams, if not the first team, to qualify for the World Cup. I mean, they are they're playing some really good soccer under Casper Holman. Maybe not quite as good now as they were a year ago, whatever it is, but they are a really dangerous team in a way that I don't think Mexico, Poland, or Saudi Arabia would be in Group C, and in a way that really I don't think Ecuador, Senegal, or Qatar would be. So maybe I maybe I am I'm sacrificing some some value here, but I think Denmark's threat kind of scared me off of Group D. Yeah, that's fair enough. But I mean, you could go through second in that group, right? You, you could, right? You could. I guess in the, in the way I was thinking about it, I'm trying to maximize the U.S.'s chances to get a, a high spot headed right. into the knockout rounds, which is maybe not the right way to go about this. But I don't know. You slip up against Denmark, and, and all of a sudden you draw against Tunisia. You're on four points, and at that point, a lot can happen. Okay. Uh, I'm going to flip the script on this question and surprise you with this one, Joe. But what if uh, what would be the worst group for the U.S. MNT to swap ah. into? I will say Group E yeah, I is pretty think- tricky. I kind of think it's Group E or Group yeah. F. So yeah. Group E is Spain, Costa Rica, Germany, and Japan. And I am one of, I think, a lot of other U.S. folks who came away very impressed by Japan when the U.S. Yeah. lost to them back in September. And as Graham pointed out when we talked about that game, that wasn't even their their first choice 11, right? This Japan team is excellent, and it would not surprise me if they got out of the group. Costa Rica, I think, is pretty clearly the weakest team in Group E. They haven't fully moved on to their next generation, but there's talent there, both old and young, that I bet we'll see in Group E. And then Spain and Germany just are you know way better than the U.S. That's just the reality right now. So Group yeah. E is tough. Group F as well, though, Ryan, scares me. Maybe not quite as much as Group E, but you got Belgium, Canada, Morocco, and Croatia. Canada has had the U.S.'s number pretty consistently. Belgium is good, if not maybe quite lived up to their full potential. Morocco, we saw the U.S. beat back in June, but still a, a, a dangerous team with real attacking talent. And Croatia, we're in the World Cup final back in 2018. I'm not wowed by them, 
but I am afraid of any team with Luka Modric. So Group E and Group F, I think, are incredibly strong, and I think are are pretty well suited to have more parity and, and more upsets than any other groups in this competition. Yeah, totally agreed there, Joe. But uh, for now, we're not swapping the US out of uh, Group B, of course, and it's going to be fine. England and the US are going to go through and meet again in the final uh, all good, right? Yeah, yeah. That good, sounds cool. great, genuinely. I'm really into that idea, Ryan. I don't know how we make that happen, but let's get started on it. <laughs> I can think of a way to make it happen. You know, they all win their games. And, oh, uh, solved it. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, there work. we go. There we go. All right, Sophie, thank you very much for that question. Let's move on to Sagar Suramajiri, who's got in touch to ask, what is the motive behind restricting squad sizes for the World Cup? And also, as I understand, making it difficult to make in-tournament changes to the squads. Would you rather the coaches had full freedom to bring in anyone they want anytime during the World Cup? Now, uh, before the final squad of 26 players is submitted, Joe, uh, I believe the submission date for the final 26 is the 13th of November. So what's that? That's pretty soon. That's yeah. 11 days away as we record. Um, there's a 55 player provisional squad, which feels very NFL and a bit pointless as well. Um, and it used to be 23 players who would go to the World Cup with every squad. That was uh, increased to 26 earlier this year by the FIFA Council. They were probably wearing cloaks while they did it, yes, I imagine. Jedi Council style. You're yeah, very definitely. right. Very right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, Joe, uh, your thoughts on this question? Um, restricting squad sizes. I mean, I assume it's for the same reason that you can't buy players all year round in a regular league. There's some integrity. There's some sporting interests here. And also, I, I suppose the, perhaps the most important issue is that if you could swatch it, swap in players throughout the tournament, it'll benefit bigger nations with yeah. bigger populations and better programs because they could just change their 11 every game. Cool. Next question. I think we did. No, I mean, you, you're it? right, Ryan. You're right with a lot of that. First of all, to get to the end of Cigar's question, would you rather coaches full freedom have the full freedom to bring in anyone they want during the World Cup? Yes, as long as the U.S. is the only team that's allowed to do that and we can bring in Erling Holland. In which case, I am well on board with Cigar's question and, and maybe some plan that he's developed here. No, I, I don't think it makes a ton of sense. So we'll start at the beginning. The motive for restricting squad sizes, I think, is about balance. Ryan, you mentioned it. You don't really need France with their 80-player deep all-star pool, right, with 80 you know, top five league players, and it's probably far, far, far more than that, but just as a rough number. Yeah. You don't really need them coming into the World Cup and having an even bigger advantage over Tunisia and Australia in that group than they already do, right? There's already plenty, uh, the, the gap is plenty big between those teams. In terms of creating a compelling competition, it doesn't really need to be all that much bigger. Now, I'm not convinced really that bringing in 26 players or 30 players or 55, whatever it is. I'm not convinced that whatever squad size you bring to the World Cup is really going to have a dramatic impact on shifting which teams are good and which teams are great and making great teams even greater. I don't think really it's going to make that much difference, but I do think it would give a, a small, it, it would increase the advantage that teams already have. And the other part of this, Ryan, is, is kind of a practical reason. Having 26 players, which I do think is a good increase from 23, given just all of the games that teams play and, and players play now at the club level, and even on the international level, right? It seems like we go a few months and there's a new competition that's that's introduced to seasons, both league seasons, international seasons, whatever that looks like. Players are playing a ton of games, so I think it's good to have the squad size be increased slightly. But you go much more than 26, Ryan, and from a practical like training standpoint, Training sessions get hard, right? There's a reason why, you know, roster sizes aren't gigantic all over the world and, and we don't see squads of 45 players training all together under the first team manager. That stuff doesn't happen a lot because it's hard to draw up training sessions that are going to keep those players engaged. You can't go even just practically again 11 v 11 in any sort of normal way when you have way more than 26 players, right? You already can't go 
you can't get everyone involved in 11 v 11 with 26 players. So some people are sitting on the sidelines no matter what to close out a yeah. training session or whatever that looks like. I don't think coaches really want to have to deal with and manage and, and monitor much more than 26 players. I'm guessing in some ways they'd prefer to have squad sizes stay in this region. Yeah, and I, I, you think you're quite right there, Joe, and it emulates the, the domestic game, doesn't it, having around 26 players for, for that very reason. So you're quite right. As, as, a, as a thought exercise, though, Joe, what do you think about, let's say, do you remember when Barcelona had to make their emergency signing? Sure. Um, what if there was a, a, a loophole where you could bring an emergency signing? I don't know if you, all, all of your goalkeepers are injured or uh, you, know, you, you desperately need a striker. What do you think about that if you were allowed to call someone up off the couch to come I, to fly out to Qatar? I think we should institute the same policy that MLS has where there's these pool, like league pool players that you can draw from if in that situation you mentioned, Ryan, all of your goalkeepers are hurt or whatever that looks like. Several MLS teams have drawn on that that pool of players in the past. Some some pretty well-known MLS goalkeepers, I think, have gone through that process. I think Brad Stuver, who's Austin FC's goalkeeper, Went through that. I think there's a number of others as well, probably more obvious ones that I'm missing. I think the World Cup should have just a World Cup pool. Maybe they have to draw from the MLS pool as well. And it's just, oh, you need a goalkeeper. Spain, all of your goalkeepers are injured. Okay, here's this random American player that you've never heard of (laughs) that is now your starting goalkeeper. I can see that going over very, very well at the World Cup. I like it. Or maybe you can only bring in people, Joe, if they're civilians. They're non-professional players. (laughs) What do you think about that? I think teams would rather play with 10, right? Is what yeah. I really what I really do think about that. <laughs> Except maybe for a goalkeeper, but even then, man, it would be it would be tough on those players. It'd be very funny. I would. certainly I'm here it. for it. I'm here for yeah. it. Yeah. Me too, me too. Sagar, thank you very much for your question. As always, we'll have some more after this break. Back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. Kevin Tolley has been in touch. Hello, Kevin. Given the last two games, is it time to worry about the USWN? Or are they probably okay, just were understandably shaken because of the Yates report and their own lived experiences? Do we have to wait until Germany to find out what's going on there? Now, Joe, um, Taylor did an episode recently with Steph Yang on the uh, ruminating on this theme, which we can point to in the feed, of course. But let's get your perspective on this too. Uh, the USWNT losing to Spain and European champions England at the home of Soccer Wembley Stadium, of course, most recently with a series coming up <laughs> in Germany shortly. Sorry, I thought you were calling Wembley Stadium like all together as a title, home of soccer, Wembley Stadium, like that was the full title of the stadium. Are you saying somehow, it's not? I'm somehow more offended by the fact that you weren't doing that and we're just slipping in an adjective towards that whole thing. Anyway, that, setting Joe, Wembley, Joe, to be clear, that is the full title. It cannot. You are lying to me. It cannot be. Home of football, but yeah. Oh, that hurts me deep down. I wish <laughs> I didn't know that fact. I'm going to pretend like I, I didn't hear you say that. So anyway, U.S. Women's <laughs> National Team. So... I, I cannot speak to how the players felt and internalized and dealt with the findings of the Yates report, nor can I speak to how those things, those very real 
abuses and acts of misconduct have affected them. These players have known about a lot of this stuff before, right? We, the public, are the people learning about the majority of these things. I'm sure the players, you know, eyes were open to a lot of what had happened that they hadn't heard of, but they knew some of what was happening here. I can't speak to how they've dealt with and internalized these things for years now, and they have been happening for years. I can say, and I don't want to trivialize any of that stuff, right? I want to be very sensitive to that because it's it's awful. It's difficult, and I can't imagine having to go through and play games dealing with that. So we, we do know some things the players clearly were shaken up, and, and they, they said as much to the media, but I can't really speak to how they're feeling on the inside. If we can look back, though, and this is where I think we have cause to worry that is separate and, and maybe doesn't even include these past two games, so I'm going to rope some of that aspect in anyway. We do have cause to worry. It has been time to worry for the U.S. Women's National Team under Vlako Andonovsky for a while now, pretty much since he took over, or at the very least since the Olympics, where the U.S. came up short, didn't make the final, certainly didn't win gold, right? So I think there have been causes to worry for a while. But before I go any further, Ryan, we have to define what worry is in this context because the U.S. Women's National Team are so good, their talent level is so high, that their floor is higher than the ceiling for basically – Two-thirds, is that a fair number, of the teams that are going to be at the 2023 World Cup? They are better on their worst day than two-thirds of you know the other top 32 teams in the world, right? So that is, in my view, the, the floor for this team. The U.S. is not a bad team, and we should not be worried about them being a bad team. So we shouldn't worry about them embarrassing themselves against weak opposition at the World Cup or any of those kinds of things. We should be, in my opinion, and this is drawn from, from conclusions since well before this past uh, October window for the U.S. Women's National Team. We should be worried about their ability to compete and, and really impose themselves on other big teams. And by that, I mean teams like England, teams like Spain, who were missing like 11 or, or more, I don't remember what the number was, of their players because of, of some issues that they have been dealing with from the Spanish Federation and I believe from their manager as well. We saw the U.S. fail to impose themselves in, in this past window. We saw them fail to impose themselves at the Olympics, which was their last real chance to play high-quality competition. So that's a problem. That's a troubling team. Germany, they got two games against Germany coming up in November, later this month, will be another big test. But the truth is, Ryan, that this U.S. team has been playing well below their ceiling, and, and they have been doing that for basically all of Vlatko's tenure. So for me, that's the concern. The concern is that they're attacking shortcomings and whatever issues are there, and, and we can maybe talk about those. We've talked about it in the past, though. My concern is that this team's attacking shortcomings make them make the margins, right? Make the the little things that go one way or the other in any given game make the margins that much smaller, and they they have to they make the margins smaller and they make it more difficult for the U.S. to go and win the World Cup again, which is already unlikely just because winning the World Cup for any one team, the odds are stacked against you. But the U.S. right now, I think, has stacked even more odds against themselves with how they play and how Vlaco has set this team up to really attack and create chances or to not create chances than they needed to be. Yeah. I think, for me, Joe, the crux of the worry, if I were a USWNT player or fan, uh, which I suppose I am also, um, not a player, but a fan, <laughs> is the strength of European sides. It's yeah. looking at the last European championships and seeing that the tide is rising. It's seeing that, in, you know, in our lifetimes, and certainly in probably Women's World Cup history, U.S. has always been the favorite, and now uh, yeah, the rising tide is lifting all the, all the boats, so to speak, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. Right, You see teams like England do really impressive things. England played the U.S. off the field for stretches of the game that they had at Wembley. The U.S. was, was fine in that game, and it created a few chances, but England created more, and the U.S. didn't create all that much. And then against Spain, they created basically nothing. And you can trace this team back against good teams, and even against the minnows right, in CONCACAF. The U.S. has not fully imposed themselves. And now 
You can't afford to do that. You can't afford to play at 75% or at 85% against teams like England and Spain and, and later this month against Germany and expect to win or expect to get results the vast majority of the time. That's the concern is that this team is not putting all the pieces together. When they're consistently taking low percentage moves in the attack, they cross the ball so much, right? And when you watch this team, it is, it's crazy. And I, I don't expect that you've watched them as much as I have, but they build up really nicely, right? The number six isn't their, their most technical position, but they can get the ball into the attacking third. They have the individual quality to beat you at any spot in the attack. The U.S. is so deep. They get the ball into the final third, and it's like, it's like there's, there's, no, there's no thought process of how to consistently create chances. They just pump the ball into the box more often than not and settle for these low percentage opportunities. And they'll convert some of them, but they could be so much better than they are. And that's my frustration and that's my worry about this team I've been saying these things for more than a year now dating back to the Olympics where Taylor and Jordan Angeli and I were doing these shows we've talked about this stuff before I I have concerns the U.S. is not a bad team to be clear they are an excellent team and I think will do well at the World Cup but if you ask me today if they're going to win the World Cup and, and reach the expectations that I think a lot of people in the media and in the American public have for this team I would say no they're they're not the favorite likely at the moment and they are probably not going to be able to accomplish that Wow. And when you mention sort of a, a well-constructed team that has low percentage chances in the final third and is banging crosses all day, it just makes me think of David Moyes' Manchester United, and that didn't go well. <laughs> it did not. And I think if you're comparing the best women's soccer team in the world to David Moyes' Manchester United team, <laughs> something has gone wrong. And maybe that's gone wrong on our end. But in this case, I think it, it's probably more gone wrong on theirs. So we'll see what happens, Ryan. The sky is not like fully fallen. There is time for things to change. I don't think any of these changes are rocket science, but yeah. we just have seen no evidence under Vlako Andonovsky that the U.S. has any plans to change how they attack. And for me, that is like like damning for this group and for Vlako Andonovsky. It has to change. I hope it does. I'm just not sure it will. Yeah. And I suppose when you think of the context of the worry, Joe, you have to think of the bar is very, set very high. Yes, of course. Team because I, don't, I can't think of any team in any other competition, male or female, where one expects to win the tournament outright every time, right? No, not at all, right? That is extremely... The, the expectations are lofty for this team, which is why I think the, the pressure is on even more for this team to get it right in the attack. And I'm not saying that the U.S. should be... I'm not saying if the U.S. goes to the World Cup and, and doesn't win it, that they have completely failed, right? That is that is unrealistic. It is not possible for this team to win the World Cup every time. That's just not how knockout tournaments go. My concern is that their odds of winning it, right, which are already relatively low, probably higher than almost any other team in the world, maybe outside of England right now. Their odds are high, but still low in the grand scheme of things compared to 100% favorites. My concern is that they are decreasing their own odds and making it harder on themselves to go out there and win games. And I think we have plenty of evidence of that back last month and back at the Olympics. Indeed. Kevin, thank you very much for your question there. Let's move on to one from Adam Fominaya, excuse me, um, who, who asked, I'm going to try the Simon impression again. Are you ready? <laughs> yeah, do it. What's the deal with this MLS Apple TV deal? That was, uh, it was worse than the first time, Joe. A little bit, a little bit. Uh, but again, I'm not going to throw stones at you because I am a glass house. So continue. Okay, I'm going to start again. Adam Fominaya asks, so what's going on with this MLS Apple TV deal? Do we have any new details? Do we know anything about the talent? And a side question, this is a good side question, what former USMNT player would you most enjoy as a colour commentator or analyst who hasn't yet debuted in one of these roles? Let's get to the first part of the question though, Joe. The Apple TV deal, it's a 10-year deal which begins next season, of course. Uh, Apple TV will be the exclusive destination to watch every single live MLS match uh, from next season 
season with no blackouts. You'll get the League's Cup in that as well. I'm sounding like a commercial. I apologise. I'm just reading the facts here. Um, and there's some MLS Next Pro and MLS Next games in there as well. Now, you're not going to get everything for free if you already have Apple TV+. Plus. However, the, the Athletic reporting that I believe 210 of the 493 total games next season will be available for Apple TV Plus subscribers. And then you'll need um, a presumably another MLS subscription on top of that for the rest of them. But I do believe, Joe, that if you're a season ticket holder at an MLS team, you get a free subscription as well. So that's kind of cool. So um, please tell us more about Apple TV and their deal. And bear in mind, I'm an Apple fanboy and I'll get offended if you insult them. Yeah, so I'm actually glad that you are an Apple fanboy, Ryan, for this conversation because... I've never used Apple TV, and so I still don't have a great grasp of the mechanics of how this is going to work, and I think this is going to be one of the biggest obstacles that MLS and Apple have, and I do think it's going to take time for them to sort this out, is figuring out how to communicate to people how to do this, right? Messaging, whenever, in my view at least, whenever you're launching something and trying to get something going and into the public eye, messaging is the hardest part, right? How do you get people on board to know about it, and how do you tell people how to do it? That's difficult, and so... For me, I'm at a knowledge deficit in how to actually go through the mechanics of this and when it's unveiled fully. And we can actually go and sign up because I'm, I'm going to do that as someone who watches a lot of Major League Soccer. I don't know exactly what that process is going to look like. But there are some things that we do know about this. And a lot of this research comes from the article that uh, Paul Tenorio, Sam Stagecoe, and Pablo Maurer had for The Athletic recently. I believe that was last week. That just dropped a ton of info that they had reported about uh, about what was going to go on with this Apple TV deal. So some things we already knew and some things that I had heard, most games are going to be on Wednesdays and Saturdays, barring stuff that has to change for scheduling reasons in stadiums or to, to sort of help out, I believe, some linear TV partners, which are, are so the those deals are being still being negotiated. There's going to be every match broadcast in English and in Spanish. So there's 12 English language broadcast teams and at least 12 Spanish language broadcast teams with potentially a couple of other folks coming in to pinch hit as there are more than 12 games a weekend because MLS is a giant league that is too big for 12 commentary or commentator teams to actually cover. So some of those things we know, I heard, and, and this is reported as well, that they're going to travel to every game. So that, I think, is a really encouraging sign for how MLS and Apple are investing into this product. And games are far better when you have people on site and you have the talent on site. So that is an encouraging sign in my view. They've already made, they've already done over 200 interviews for those uh, commentary jobs. So that's a lot of people. I believe they interviewed every single English language person that was involved in local deals this past year. So people wow. in Columbus, people in uh, Charlotte, people uh, everywhere, right? All of these markets had their people interviewed. There's going to be pregame and halftime and postgame and, and a whip around show all produced by MLS at a studio and, and run out of a studio in New York City. So those are things we know. That's all Honestly, I think pretty encouraging, Ryan. It sounds like MLS is willing to invest in this product, whether it's going to be as profitable for them as they wanted to because of how much money they're going to spend on making this happen is a different question. But at least from a viewer's perspective, I'm excited about a lot of these changes. Yeah. I'm excited about some of the innovation that we're going to see. I, I do have concerns, and, and Paul and Sam and Pablo laid this out in the piece that they wrote. There's no executive producer just yet, and, and the person that they had involved in in uh, in this operation, who they'd hired and and had spent time, I believe, with Concacaf, he was not the executive producer. Is uh, maybe not going to be around for much longer in this process. They've had difficulty in trying to get this thing really organized from the top down. That is troubling. So there's going to be some things that don't go right. And it's going to be a bit of a rough stretch to start this year potentially. But I am I'm excited. I think there's a lot of yeah. positive changes here. And if people can sort of figure out, okay, what is Apple TV? And I, I loop myself in with those people. And MLS can get some folks on board and Apple can do the same. I think this could be a really interesting and engaging step for Major League Soccer. I mean, in terms of 
the mechanics of it, Joe, I imagine it operating as an app like your Paramount Plus does or your Peacock in terms of it would just be an app and you scroll through menus. Hopefully it works a little better than those two apps do, <laughs> quite frankly, and, and the software isn't hidden like it is on those two apps. But um, yeah, I think that should be a relatively straightforward process and Apple are quite good at doing things intuitively in that respect. So I hope that works out well. I know a lot of fans have been quite upset because of the broadcast crews have basically had to say farewell for most local, uh, local broadcast crews, I should say. Um, and, you know, broadcast crews who local fans have become accustomed to over many years in many cases. But as you say, I don't. It's unclear as to which crews are going to be carrying over into Apple, and, and they'll be having different paymasters, I suppose, at that point. So that'll be interesting to see as well. But I think the real benefit for me, Joe, and I think for many fans, is the lack of blackouts as well. Yeah. Because I know, certainly, uh, anecdotally speaking, as a Charlotte FC fan, you can have on match day, you can have fans in certain parts of the Carolinas who are unable to see the game, and they're, wa- they're watching a Family Guy rerun instead of the game or something. So to, to limit that frustration, I think, is a big, big win. Yeah. And once again, speaking with my Apple bias... I tend to think Apple do things quite well, generally speaking. They don't fail too many in too many instances. And I think the Apple TV Plus slate has been a credit to them in terms of the, the dramatic and the, and, and the content they've put out there so yeah. far. So I hope that is a good indicator as well. I, um, I, think, I think, sorry, Ryan, just to interject there, you're talking about Apple and, and their value almost as a brand and their success. I, I do think that's a part of this, right? Mm-hmm. MLS has had these linear TV partners for a while. Some of them, ESPN has been around since day one of the league and I think has done, you know, in some ways really, really well for MLS, has done a lot of good things for MLS and MLS in return. You look at Fox though, and, and you know, they're not sending people to a conference semi, a conference final game, right? I mean, they're not, I think it was a conference semifinal actually, that's, that's on me, but they're not sending people to go cover Philadelphia and Cincinnati in person to, to broadcast that game and give it a real feel. Sometimes these broadcasters that MLS has been working with doesn't really treat the league like it is a real thing. And in some ways, that's fair, right? I understand that sometimes the ratings don't justify these investments, but with Apple, it looks like MLS has found a partner that is willing to invest and is also incentivized by their success in a way that maybe some of these other linear partners haven't been because Apple TV is is sort of in this way, and maybe this is a stretch, but I think there's some truth to this, is sort of where MLS is, right? Trying to prove itself, trying to break in to a market of other, you know, maybe better and more established uh, subscription programs on Apple side and for MLS yeah. soccer leagues and soccer content that you can engage, there is an incentive for both of these entities to work together and in, in Apple's case, throw money at stuff. In MLS's case, throw money at stuff and, and get this job done and be different. And I, I just don't think MLS or their partners have had maybe the same incentive in the past. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, Joe. Um, first, I'll say that Apple, I maybe not these days, but certainly is a cool brand to align oneself with. Sure. So there, there is the part, they, they can elevate MLS in that way. And the other th- big thing, Joe, is that there is an incentive for Apple to do well with this because I think for many reasons, this is a proof of concept for them because they want to go for the NFL. They want to go for other sports as well. And if they can show they've executed MLS uh, in, a, in a way that is pleasing to the fans, is pleasing to the broadcasters, and pleasing to everybody, then I think it's, you know, they are incentivized to do that, aren't they? And I think we, we, I could be eating these words in a year or two, but it does seem like we've got the ingredients for a good product here. Yeah, it, it certainly does seem that way. I am, I'm eager to learn, and I, I'm sympathetic, and I feel bad for a lot of the broadcasters who aren't going to be brought on. Again, that is extremely difficult and, and sucks, frankly. I'm also yeah. sympathetic to people who are deeper in the interview process and still have no idea if they're going to be employed in February. Like, that is not great, especially when I believe they were told that they would hear in September. So 
we're well past September at the moment. We're two months past September. And at this point, it's unclear, I think, when those folks are going to hear. So I, I feel for a lot of the people that are involved. But if those things can get sorted out and if they pick you know, good people both on the, the front end and, and also sort of on the back end or behind the scenes that we're, not, that we're not actually watching and don't really know much about, those are big ifs. But I am, I am optimistic about this being a good thing. Again, this comes as a neutral who doesn't live in an MLS market and has pretty much no attachment to like it does not have local attachment to a local broadcast team. So yeah. I'm I am not fully able to sympathize with fans who feel kind of gypped out in a bunch of this process, but me, I'm I'm kind of excited about this. Yeah, likewise. And it's a big opportunity for Apple as well. This 10-year deal going through a, a domestic World Cup cycle as yeah. well. So it'd be very important for them to get it right in that respect. Uh, the second part of the question, uh, Adam's question, oh, yeah. Joe, uh, what former USMNT player would you most enjoy to see as a color commentator or analyst who has not yet uh, tried their hand at such a role? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I have, I have two. I don't think these two have done much, but or, or if anything, Dax McCarty is one of them. I, I just think he's a really interesting guy and seems personable. And that for me, when I'm talking about trying to find uh, a broadcaster, someone who's going to be on camera, that is the most important thing. He seems personable and knowledgeable about the game. And yeah. Sasha Kleshin is another one. I think he gives good interviews. He he is well-spoken. Both of these players are. I'm sure there's a bunch of other ones, but I was trying to think of, of some slightly younger former U.S. men's national team players who aren't really in the pool anymore, but are maybe towards the tail end of their MLS careers. And, and those two players came to mind for me first, Ryan. Did you have anybody on this list that, that sort of jumped to mind for you? Uh, Dax McCarthy's a very good one. Um, let's get Jimmy Conrad involved, shall we? Oh, Why not? oh, come on. He's done it now. I guess maybe not commentary or, or being an analyst, so I guess you're right on that one. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, he, he, I may be doing him a disservice there, but I'd like to see him on the reg on this product as well. So uh, that would be my answer. To I like it. Adam, thank you very much for that question. Let's take a very quick break. When we come back, a few more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to Listener Questions. Andrew McPherson is a listener with a question. After listening to the Klopp Big Thing episode on the feeds, guys, check it out. I wondered about what would be the average cost of buying a team in each of the top four tiers of English soccer. What are the top and bottom net worth teams in each tier? Now, this is an interesting one, Joe. We know that top Premier League teams are worth billions. We saw that most recently happen with Chelsea. Uh, for example, in their sale um, a, a few months ago. I've had a look on transfer marks at the uh, average values of League Two, the bottom of the four tiers of English soccer, and the tier in which my team, AFC Wimbledon, currently plies its trade. Uh, would you like to know the league's, uh, league soccer in England's cheapest team by value, according to transfer mark, Joe? I would love to know, Ryan. Hit me. 
Stockport County. Yeah, there you go. Uh, sort of Manchester <laughs> suburb. Uh, Phil Foden's from Stockport. Uh, that's all you need to know about that. They are apparently worth around £800,000, which by current uh, um, exchange rates is about $800,000 and not much far off there. So yeah. that is very, very cheap. That's a couple weeks' wages for a top-tier player. Um, in in looking it's sort of in the middle of the pack, in the bottom tier there, AFC Wimbledon, their value is apparently around $2 million, euros, pounds, all around the same thing these days, thanks economy. Um which I'm kind of surprised by, but I suppose the stadium that might lift the, the value of the team up because um, the team is not very good, I would say. <laughs> uh, the most expensive team in League Two at a value of around seven million euros or pounds, according to Transfer Marked, is Salford City, the team which was um, you know owned by uh, Nicky Butt and Gary Neville and all the uh, class of '92 folk. Uh, Nicky Butt taking over as the GM there, I believe, uh, relatively recently. Uh, Seven million euros, apparently they are. I think a lot of that is in their brand. I, I would suggest, not necessarily um, in their player pool or anything. Although they have done very well, they've worked themselves up from the seventh rate tier into league soccer relatively recently. They're doing very well indeed. The total value of all League Two teams, Joe is around $80 million, according to Transfer Marked. So basically, you could buy, if these values are to be believed, you could buy all of the teams in League 2 for like the value of like Kepa, basically. <laughs> that is, there's something beautiful about that equation, Ryan. I, I don't know why it makes me so happy, but it does. So, okay, yeah. quick quick caveat here, because I don't know about you, Ryan. I have no idea how Transfer Market compiles these values. I, I just mm. have no idea, nor do I think that they are entirely accurate. Like, there's just no way they know all of the detail behind the finances of these leagues. That just yeah. you cannot convince me that that's the case. That said, it is a figure, right? It at least gives us a bit of a ballpark. I'm sure they have some figures somewhere deep in the German portion of Transfer Markets website about how they calculate it. But I will say you go through and, and there's some logic behind this. You look at League One in that same transfer market system and the end, sort of the, the last, I don't know, eight teams in League One have very similar market values to the top of, of League Two, right? So you're yeah. talking about seven, eight million pounds, seven, eight, seven, eight million dollars. You get to the top of League One, and, and according to Transfer Market, Derby County would be the most valuable team, and they're sitting at about $25 million. So a lot of this feels right. There's a big jump, though, and, and this, this bears out a little bit more when you look into research of what clubs actually sold for as you go higher up the table. You're looking at increases from from league to league and that's obvious right but in the championship from what i found based off of actual sales or, or figures cited for sales of i believe clubs like swansea city and hull city we're talking about 50 million right so so sort of double the top of uh of league one and there's some fluidity here obviously but i think that's a fair figure for maybe an average championship team or slightly above average and then you get up to the premier league Newcastle selling for about $400 million and, and Chelsea selling for, I believe, $2.5 billion. Yeah. A huge disparity there. That's where you're going to see, I think, Ryan, the biggest gaps between top and bottom of the league is in the Premier League because those top brands, teams like Chelsea and Man City and Manchester United, Liverpool, they have this brand recognition in a global sense that is worth so much, that is literally worth billions of dollars. Newcastle, less so. And so Saudi Arabia comes in and buys them for Four hundred million. So you're you're likely looking for the average team somewhere in the five hundred million to six hundred million range, maybe a little bit less. Somewhere in there, though, Ryan, I think is fair for the average non-big six Premier League team. Yeah, almost as much as an MLS team, Joe. Yeah, almost. that that kind of shook me, Ryan, in doing this research and thinking again about how much MLS is is charging for these expansion fees and seeing so many American ownership groups going over and, and purchasing stakes in European clubs. 
like there's a reason for that. There's a number of reasons for that, but MLS is pricey and you can go out and, and do something different and unique and have your European play thing for a lot less than you can in some cases than an MLS team. Yeah. Investing in the future, I guess. Sure. Strong economy in America and all that jazz. We, yeah, I don't know what to say about that, but we have to take these figures with a pinch of salt. As you say, Joe, you mentioned Derby County being the top uh, value team in the championship. Um, they were an administration like yeah. over the summer, which means they couldn't pay their bills and they effectively means they have a negative value. So um, we have to take that with a pinch of salt. But yes, uh, I, I hope that helps, Andrew, as a rough guide to the average cost of buying a team. And if you're in the market for a team, uh, let me know and I'll take a percentage. I'll be your broker. If you want to buy Stockport, for example, I'll be, I'll be happy to do that, Andrew. So get in touch with the show. Um, that could be my first brokerage deal. Sure. I like it. All right. I like it. Let's make it happen. <laughs> yeah, let's let's branch out, Joe. Why not? Why not? Live shows and brokering to purchase teams. That's what TSS is all about these days. Uh, one final question here from Riley Brown. What American country music song would make a good World Cup song? I think all my ra- rowdy friends are coming uh, coming over by Hank coming over by Hank Williams Jr. They say that would be a good fit. Um, full disclosure, Joe. Country <laughs> music is kind of my blind spot. I like. Like Ryan Adams, alt country. I like Casey Musgraves and Marin Morris, that country adjacent kind of sure. stuff. But the true, um, I love my truck, um, you know, steel steel guitars kind of stuff kind of evades me. It's a shame Taylor Rockwell's not on this episode. Yeah. I believe he is the Florida Georgia Line fan club president. Um, <laughs> I'm so, sure I'll love that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we would love to get his perspective at some point. But uh, have you found any good solutions to this question, Joe? Yeah, also full confession. We thought Taylor was going to be on this show. He did not end up being on this show. I think, and I told Ryan before we started recording, that I think country music might be the worst genre of music that exists. So (laughs) I don't tend to listen to much country music. If I am going to, Ryan, it's going to be country adjacent, as you said. I tossed Sam Hunt along with uh, Morris and Musgraves that you tossed in there. It's not really real country, but it'll do. So I I have two answers. They're both kind of jokey, but, I mean, come on, I tried. So, Riley, my first choice is uh, Don't Tread, the famous song by Clint Dempsey, because Clint Dempsey was born in Texas. So that means it counts. I don't make the rules. I just enforce them. Is that a country song? Ryan, Texas, you just heard my whole argument for why it should be considered a country song. It's not, but we're going (laughs) to pretend it is. Don't Tread, Clint Dempsey's from Texas. He's from the South. It counts. My other answer, this is slightly more real, but also just really not. Uh, the Devil Went Down to Georgia. That is like a, a country kind of folk song. Except in this case, the devil is England. Georgia is Qatar. And the U.S. is Johnny playing the fiddle. Johnny ends up beating the devil in their battle. Ryan, the gauntlet is thrown. The U.S. will beat England on Black Friday. Oh, my gosh. Please don't instigate that song because I don't want that to happen. No, thank you. I was really proud of that, honestly. I don't have a good answer, Riley, to your question. I'm sorry. I think Taylor tweeted about it from the TSS account and gave some of his thoughts there. So go go check that out at Total Soccer Show and maybe you'll get a little bit of a better answer. But yeah. I'm, I'm kind of proud of The Devil Went Down to Georgia. And don't tread. It's a classic. Genre or not, it transcends all Ryan Bailey. Yeah, I think you've really bent the, uh, the, the, the genre of country a little bit with your answers, but I'll take them. Uh, the one I found, Joe, in terms of lyrical content, in terms of attitude, there is a song by Eric Church called The Outsiders which is as outsidery as you would uh, think it is. I'll, I'll read you some of the sample lyrics. We're the bad news. We're the young guns. We're the ones they, they told you to run from. Yeah, the player's going to play and a hater's going to hate. And a regulator's born to regulate. Warren G reference. Nice. Such great lyrics. Yeah. Wow, sorry. I'm just in awe at how creative these are. Keep going. 
It keeps, it keeps going. When it hits the fan and it all goes down and the gloves come off, you're just going to find out. So there's some subtle sporting references in this one as well. I could imagine that one being played in a slightly angry, we're the underdogs, we're going to come get you kind of vibe. So Eric Church, The Outsiders, is my primary nomination. And I, is Eric Church like a... I don't know if you know if he's strictly country. Yeah, I think well. I think so. I think he's like pretty well down the country train, but okay. I guess I don't know for sure. <laughs> we're, we're the wrong people to answer this question, Riley. We apologize. But uh, my other my other nomination, actually, I'll I'll go with uh, Carrie Underwood's uh, Sunday Night Football song on NBC. <laughs> Just do that, but like slightly soccerize the lyrics. I've been waiting all day for the USA Friday. Yeah, <laughs> there's something here, Ryan. We're yeah. almost there. Yeah, we did an excellent job there, Joe. We should be very proud of ourselves on that question. I'm proud of us, at least. If no one else is, I'm proud of us, Ryan. Oh, well, that's all that counts. And I think that just about concludes our listener questions episode. Uh, Joseph Lowry, thank you so much for joining me on this intrepid journey. Let's go bone up on some country songs, shall we? Yeah, I'm not going to do that. But thank you, Ryan, for hosting (laughs) this and doing a great job that you always do. Oh, thank you very much, Joe. The pleasure's all mine. And listener, thank you for joining us on this journey. We'll be back on the feed very shortly. But for now, bye! Bye!